Yeah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about a meeting of the Russian Security Council. We're going to be talking about the mutiny that took place with the Wagner Group. And then we're going to be talking about China opening up a joint military base, a joint training base in Cuba. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. We have uh, first. I want to start with a correction. Victor Shokin. When I was talking about the Biden bribery scandal last episode, Victor Shokin is not the Ukrainian responsible for the bribe. He was actually the one investigating Burisma, the one that Biden, the prosecutor that Biden got fired in that famous clip. Uh, so I'll start with that, and then we have Zelensky announcing that Ukraine will not be holding elections until the conclusion of hostilities. And this comes as Ukraine's counteroffensive has failed, suffered irreplaceable losses, especially in equipment, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. And it, this offensive is now rumored to be on a pause. So not going well in the slightest, which is why we needed a distraction. So many, many, many distractions. Like, uh, uh, hey, Trump got indicted. Don't look at the Biden indictment. Don't don't look at Biden about to be impeached. Oh, and the that impeachment is making its way up in the House. It's not going to get to the Senate. I can tell you that much, but it's there. You know, you know. Will it get the same coverage as the Trump impeachment? Probably not. But you know, it's there. <laughs> I suppose. But yeah, uh, Hunter Biden pleads guilty, not for the court case involving corruption and bribery. But he pleads guilty to tax evasion and the illegal possession of a weapon. And then he walks. Uh, as of now, he's looking at no jail time. But we'll see if that changes. Perhaps not. Perhaps maybe. We'll see. Uh, but since we're still talking about the Bidens just a little bit, Joe Biden has sabotaged Blinken's attempt at reproachment by calling Xi Jinping a dictator less than 24 hours after Blinken came back from China. So there goes that. But you know, you know what? I, you can't say I never gave anything to Blinken. I you can't say I never did anything for him, <laughs> but here we go again with the, Oh, this guy's a dictator. And, and I said it before when, Oh, I w briefly went over that uh, town hall that Trump did on CNN. And the lady, she was like, Are, do you think Putin is a war criminal? Would you Will you commit to saying that Putin is a war criminal? And, of course, Trump walked around that question for the obvious reason of, how are you going to do diplomacy with someone that you've called a war criminal? See, this is the problem with these... Emotion, really emotional people, some would say children in adult clothing, running the show. They can't keep their composure together. They can't, they can't keep their cool. They lash out. They call other leaders in other countries names, and then there's no diplomacy to be had. 
How are you supposed like really think about the consequence of these words? You call Putin a, a war criminal, right? You call him a war criminal. Now, how are you supposed to negotiate a peace between him and Ukraine? You can't. Now, perhaps that's by design because they don't want to talk to Putin. They don't want to negotiate peace. They want they want the destruction of Russia. And well, if they don't get it, well, too bad. <laughs> they they just they don't want to do that even as they see the writing on the wall, which is that the Ukrainian offensive is dead. It's dead in the water. Now, I, I was the one last week saying we should give it some time, and I still think we should give it some time, but I don't see what exactly they're gonna be able to do now that they couldn't do a few weeks ago, especially when we get into the equipment losses. Like, it's, it's really bad. It's really, really bad. But you call this, person, a war criminal, how are you going to negotiate peace? How are you going to have any kind of settlement whatsoever? Because the people running our, running the show, they're stupid, but they're not that stupid. Like at a certain point, yeah, I, I have to apply the same principle to them that I do with uh, Putin, where it's sure you could sit there and call Putin a madman. And then you'll believe things that you otherwise wouldn't believe about somebody. Oh, he blew up the pipeline that was his. Uh, why would he do that? Oh, because he's a madman. Okay, okay, I guess I guess so. Oh, he bombed the Zaporizhia power plant. Well, he controlled the land around it. Why would he do that? Oh, he's a madman. Oh, yeah, okay, I guess. I guess, you know. <laughs> Why would he do these things? Oh, he's a madman. And then because he's a madman, you just write off nonsensical things that we hear as, oh, he's a madman. So, of course, he would do it. But if you just assume he's a normal person, just assume he's a normal person. Suddenly, it, you can't just write off the Nord Stream attacks. Why would he do that? Well, if he's a normal person, um, it wouldn't make sense for him to do that, so it probably wasn't him. Why would he bomb the Zaporizhia power plant? Well, if he's a normal person, it wouldn't make sense for him to do that. He probably wouldn't do that. You know? When, when, you, when you just look at someone as a normal person, not as some slow person. He's not slow. You're not dumb. You're not... You're not this, that. You're not a madman. You're just a normal person. Suddenly, all of that goes down the drain, and it doesn't make sense. So, with the people running our country, at a certain point, I have to apply that same principle. I could just sit here and say, oh, they're stupid. They're dumb. They're retarded. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. They're sleepwalking us into a war. But if I just take a step back, and yes, they are dumb, but if I just assume that they are normal people, well, okay, why would you do this? Oh, it's not just you're dumb. You are emotionally invested in this project. You are over-invested in this project. You're compromised politically. I mean, you're a $10 million bribery scandal that we know of. Business interests, money laundering interests, uh, the war complex has a massive invested stake in this, judging by the amount of military equipment we've gone to Ukraine. So when you just take the step back, apply that same principle and just assume that the people running the show are normal instead of idiots, it becomes deliberate. There's no, there's not much of another explanation here other than it's deliberate. It might be emotionally motivated. It might be very irrationally motivated. Uh, it might be business interests and motivated in that way or financially motivated. But it's not just some random thing you happen to do. It's deliberate in some way, shape, and form. Now, the 
specific reasons as to why will vary based on what group you're looking at. But if we just assume that Biden, Blinken, you know, the State Department, the Pentagon, if we just assume they're normal people for just, you know, half a second, only half, none of this can be an accident. None of this can be, oh, they're just dumb. They just, it, one thing led to the other. It's no, no, no. You don't, one thing led to another, your way into giving $200 billion to another country. This is deliberate. This is money laundering. This is war profiteering. And then there's the emotional investment in the destruction of Russia, which is never going to come. But they can't come to terms with that. And so they just keep doubling down. So you get, you get that. You get that. And here we are. And again, you have Biden calling Xi a dictator, sabotaging any possibility of a rapprochement between us and China, at least while he's in office. Because again, you call it, if you call people names, certain names have certain uh, actions associated with that, both on the end of the person you're calling names to and on your end, which is why if I say that X leader is committing a genocide, I can no longer conduct diplomacy with that person. I can no longer associate with that person. So not only am I attributing an action to him, but certain actions in response must now come out of me because I said that. See how that works. You can't call him a dictator and then say, huh, let's, let's make some negotiation. Let's, let's do some negotiation. Let's do some infrastructure deals. Let's do some investment deal. You can't do that. Not after you call him a dictator. Maybe if you're a, a very peculiar personality, you can get away with doing that. If you have a lot of charisma about you and you can call him a dictator and then get on the phone with him and hash out some actual deals. But Biden is not that guy. Most people are not that guy. So the things that you call other people, especially other world leaders, matters. If you're going to call this man a dictator, you can no longer conduct diplomacy with him. If you're going to call Putin a war criminal, you can no longer conduct diplomacy with them. And again, part of that is by design. They don't want diplomacy. They want the war. And there are various interests attached to the war. Now, there's a divide between which war we should be fighting. Unfortunately, that's that's the dividing line. That's where we draw the line. We shouldn't be fighting in Ukraine. We should be fighting in Taiwan. It's, but hey, at least somebody's speaking out against the war in Ukraine. But uh, for the time being, they're not winning the argument. But calling people names has consequences on the international stage. And all the more reason we need to get these highly emotional, very immature, quote unquote adults out of here and get Trump back in office where he belongs. <laughs> But I'll, I'll leave that there. We have the Proud Boys, a group, uh, the Proud Boys, which is an American political action group slash private security force slash federally funded street gang slash militia. Uh, they're very, they, depending on what fact, what, uh, what part of that group you're going into, you can get uh, very interesting uh, distinctions pops up and very interesting situations. But the Proud Boys got into a clash with federal agents who <laughs> who were dressed up as Nazis 
when those agents showed up at the Proud Boys uh, Pride rally. I swear you can't make this up. Now, the federal agents got their ass whooped, and I'm sure the Proud Boys are going to get arrested (laughs) for assaulting federal agents. Now, what the federal agents were doing there, uh, probably stoking unnecessary problems like they usually do which is again why a lot of these agencies really don't need to exist i mean if 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 this is what they're going to bide their time with trying to instigate shit on the streets of the united states you deserve to be abolished i have no remorse for your institution we don't need you the constitution does not mandate that we have you goodbye we don't need these bureaus we need the when the cia the fbi the nsa get the d heck get these niggas up out of here get them up bye go gone Get them back here. That's not me defending everything the street boys ever do in their lifetimes. I don't know them. (laughs) But I do know my government well enough to know that they do not deserve half the power that they have. uh, Morally or constitutionally. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, We have Israel planning to construct 5,700 new housing units in Israeli-occupied Palestine. Or settlements as they call, call them. Uh, settlements on the West Bank. So more tensions, more problems between Israel and Palestine. Now, China has come out in favor of the two-state solution. And given China's growing influence in the Middle East and the wave of peace deals being made across the Middle East, the, the changing tides, it seems that that tide is making its way to Israeli shores. And we'll see how Israel responds. I'm sure the Arab world, now finding some sense of solidarity with one another, with the closing of the Syrian civil war and the rapprochement between Arabia and Iran. Uh, Iran's not Arab, but, you know, it's it's the Middle East, the broader Middle East. But I'm sure that the broader Middle East and the Arab world, plus Iran, will be more than happy to finally resolve this issue between Israel and Palestine, the two-state solution and truth be told, it's long overdue. It's long overdue. Now, what'll, what'll actually happen? Who knows how it will go down? Who knows? These are things that'll be worked out by other people. And we'll just talk about it on the podcast when it happens. But to me, it makes no sense to have a, a, a country that completely bisects another country. You're going to split one country into two separate pieces and then have another country that runs straight through the middle. That doesn't make any sense. Like it. it why would you do that? Like, it's one thing if you're Germany in the, the 13 and 1400s, we have all these different principalities and territories owned by all these different princes and kings and monarchs. And it's personal holdings and then it's marriage holdings and it's all these different overlapping things and never consolidated. That's one thing if it happens by chance and by circumstance and you get this web of territories that's really hard to decipher on a map which is when people usually don't bother drawing a map with germany on it back in the day they would just leave it blank but it's another thing when you deliberately do that as a part of drawing the boundaries between israel and palestine why would you do that that you're asking for problems and so the two-state solution just makes sense we'll see what happens with that though i'm sure i'm sure that the expansion of these uh settlements is going to lead to more violence between Israel and Palestine. Expect more fighting for the time being. We have the Titan submersible 
the little submarine that was meant to go take a a number of very wealthy passengers down to see the remains, the wreckage of the Titanic. Uh, but on its journey there, the submersible suffered a catastrophic implosion while deep under the ocean. All passengers are likely deceased. Now, the military ha reports having detected the implosion when it actually happened uh, a week ago, yet did not inform the public or the news or the... <laughs> And the government didn't bother to inform us either during that period of time while while the rest of the country was watching this heavily cinematized rescue effort where they had that little ticker on the side showing how much how much time they had left before they ran out of oxygen and food and and then we find out they were killed instantaneously by the sudden catastrophic implosion yes and Again, no one in the government bothered to say anything while they were going through this heavily dramatized, heavily cinematized rescue operation when they knew all along that these people were dead. So that's a tragedy and a yet another exposure of the corruption in our government. And uh, the memes are hilarious. I'll just leave it at that. Now, that's the rapid fire for today. But uh, we'll get into the meat of this episode in, a, in just a moment. And I've actually kept it rapid this time, you know, 16 minutes, 17 minutes. You know. But yeah, we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. And uh, actually, before I go, ha ha, ha uh, yeah, I, last week I released the the topics, the various topics of the episode we, we talked about uh, for uh, covering three episodes. So it was a lot of separate releases that came out last week. So this week, it's just going to be this episode that I'm breaking down instead of three uh, releasing over multiple days. But yeah, you know, now if you don't have time to watch the entirety of my podcast, you can listen to the snippets. Yeah, the snippets, 20, 30, uh, maybe 40 minutes. Uh, you know, for the longer podcast episodes, it's kind of unavoidable. But hey, but hey. Now you get little bite-sized chunks of your, uh, this lovely podcast of ours. I mean, by ours, I mean mine, but you are my lovely listeners. But that's all I have for the rapid fire. That's all I have for the rapid fire. I will be breaking this episode up into smaller pieces this for this week, and it's just going to be this episode, so you won't get bombarded with a bunch of smaller episodes. But we'll move on to the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode, and we're going to start today where we're talking about the Russian Security Council meeting. So last week there was a meeting of Russia's Security Council, obviously, uh, covering the events from June 4th to June 21st, and they're, of course, discussing the Ukrainian counter-offensive. And they've said some very interesting things. Now, they said they estimated that Ukraine suffered between 13 to 15,000 casualties. Two officials gave two different numbers, so that's why I'm giving a range here, 13 to 15,000 casualties. They said that Ukraine had lost 240 to 260 tanks over the course of this. Well, at, at the time that they were doing this, about a three-week period, but it, it appears to have leveled out and stalled out by the third week, judging by the fact that when we first talked about it, the Ukrainians were losing 1,000 men a day. So... A thousand times three weeks would have been twenty-one thousand, but 
13 to 15,000 suggests that they sort of sort of left it alone sometime later on in the second week and they didn't really go all in on the attacks in the third week which is why it's rumored that the offensive has been put on pause and it likely has and you now you go back to the standard levels of com- conflict and combat that have been routine throughout the war essentially the counteroffensive it is no longer existent but this ministry meeting this meeting of the security council in my mistake they said that ukraine had suffered 240 to 260 tanks lost 13 of which were leopard twos they said that 400 to 600 armored vehicles were also lost along with 152 infantry fighting vehicles which they said were destroyed 279 artillery and mortar systems so i'm i'm guessing that the bulk of that are going to be mortars rather than artillery because artillery are pretty big so you're talking about some serious losses if that breaks down more heavily on the artillery side rather than the mortar side so i'm guessing that most of that are coming from mortars but that's still a very big number you have 42 multiple rocket launch systems multiple launch rocket systems my mistake uh, they say were destroyed or put out of action. That's a lot. That's that's a lot. You, you, these are not very easy to produce. You don't get a whole lot of these on the battlefield. So for 42 of them to be taken out is uh, catastrophic in terms of Ukraine's attacking power. Two air defense systems were knocked out. And this is pro- the reason that that one's probably lower than the others. It's because Russia's been just systematically targeting and racially profiling Ukraine's air defense systems for the past how many months? They've been doing this since October, so shooting about eight months, almost a year. It's it, they've been targeting Ukraine's air defenses for that long, and so two air defense systems is probably that. That's probably the reason why that one's so low, because you think that they'd be targeting that more, but they've been targeting that all along. So they there's not much left to get rid of. They also took down 10 tactical fighter jets, which is massive losses for Ukraine. Their air force already wasn't exactly the largest or very large to begin with. We're t- they're talking about getting two F-16s and they've just lost 10 fighter jets. So that's catastrophic. The Russians say they've taken down four helicopters, 264 drones now most of these are probably smaller reconnaissance drones uh, like perhaps closer to the kind you could buy in a store rather than say a reaper or something like that but that's still a lot uh, especially when you factor in the role of reconnaissance in this war the the reconnaissance role that drones have played in this war where you can literally see via via your drone in the little ipad or phone that you have hooked up to it and to its camera you can literally see where the enemy's position is in detail certainly more detail than you would have if you were at a, a biplane in world war one taking a, a photograph so the role of reconnaissance that drones have played is has been very pivotal because reconnaissance and using that to direct artillery onto enemy positions this has been an artillery war so the loss of all these reconnaissance units is going to throw what's left of the Ukrainian artillery off 
they, they won't be able to accurately pinpoint the Russian positions the same way that they could have with these drones if, had they not been taken out. So this, this is going to have secondary effects. The loss of all these drones is going to have secondary effects uh, just based off of what we observe with the role that they have played which is reconnaissance rather than as a strike unit. Some drones do have strike capabilities, but it's been primarily reconnaissance and you t call in a strike on a certain location as your drone is flying up. And so you use the drone and maybe sometimes helicopters, but you use the drones to call in these strikes and you can get some deadly accuracy on enemy positions. So this is really bad for targeting their kill chain system. And then the Russians claim that 424 motor vehicles, so think like trucks and armored cars, those appear to have been destroyed as well. And I bring this up, and uh, I guess I should also acknowledge that I'm at this point heavily, heavily, heavily dependent on numbers and information provided by the Russian side. The Ukrainians have only just now acknowledged that they were even in a counteroffensive, and that's to say that they're putting it on pause. But at this point, I now have to recognize how off the deep end I am in my dependence on the Russian numbers. So if, for whatever reason, the Russians suddenly become unreliable sources, uh, my analysis, my observations are going to be very heavily skewed wrong. So that's something to look out for. But one of the interesting things that came from this as well, because they, the Security Council, they told Putin how they got this information. And how they got it was by intercepting Ukrainian communications, which means that they they're list they're they've listened in on Ukrainian communications, and they're able to listen in on Ukrainian communications to such a degree that they can snatch all this vital information off the Ukrainians without the Ukrainians even knowing. Because essentially, what they've told Putin is that these are the losses that the Ukrainian commanders are telling their superiors that they've lost. So they're much closer to what the actual accurate number is. It is certainly closer than anything we're going to get coming out of the Ukrainian side itself, especially since they really don't want to acknowledge that they're even in the offensive. And it's way better than what you're going to get coming out of the propaganda press here in the United States. So that's another key piece of information that the Russians have really they're, they've penetrated Ukrainian communications. I don't know if it's very deep. I don't know how deep the penetration goes, but it's certainly very wide to have gotten that much info out of the Ukrainians in such a relatively short space of time, like three weeks. So that's something to take into account as we move forward in the war, that the Russians can hear everything. The Russians can hear everything. So who knows what else the Russians might know that we just aren't being privy to because the Russians don't bother to talk about it. Who knows what else that they know about Ukraine well, that we don't. And now that that fact is out there, the Ukrainians are going to are going to have to be on edge and they're going to be a, they're going to have to be very careful about the communications that they make at the higher levels like the the combat, the ground losses, you can't do much about those communications unless you want to have your units just go dark across the the front line and then you even you don't know what's actually happening on the front without having men on horseback carry the message to you 
in which case you're never going to know what's actually happening because it's too slow. Modern combat is very fast paced. Things change rapidly, even if things don't change much at all. So the Russians have penetrated deep enough to know the movements and the actions and the losses of the Ukrainians on the front line. But who knows how far back those communication interceptions can go. Perhaps it goes all the way to Kiev. And they're listening in on the messages and com communications and talks and conversations happening between Zelensky and other high-level officials in Ukraine. Perhaps even international discussions between Kiev and other countries. Perhaps the between Ukraine and United States. So that's something to keep in mind. The Russians have penetrated Ukraine's communications. And it is uncertain right now how deep that that goes. But there's the potential that it goes very, very deep. So Ukraine's better look out. But the next bit of information that I wanted to talk about, uh, this is not a part of that meeting, that uh, meeting of the Security Council, but I feel is very relevant nonetheless. Uh, in this bit of information is that the Russian military has grown by 166,000 volunteers since the beginning of this year, 2023. That's a lot of men. So I figured, hey, let's run through the tally again, since, well, it's relevant again. There were 300,000 men mobilized, plus 80,000 men who volunteered back in October during Russia's first mobilization. Then 500,000 men were mobilized in December as a part of Russia's more permanent remilitarization. So these forces, these are forces who will likely remain in service for some time, even after the war in Ukraine is over. And now we have another 166,000 volunteers over the course of this year. So spread out over the uh, about six, six and a half, well, actually almost seven months now. It's pretty late in June. So 166,000 men spread out over seven months. That's still a very large number. And all in all, it totals up to 1.046 million men. A million men added to the Russian military. And remember, they started the war with 750,000 active duty troops, of which around 200,000 went into Ukraine. So that gives us a grand total of 1.796 million men. So 1.8 million, essentially. Now, this was going to be a sort of standalone segment in today's episode. I mean, these are some pretty hefty numbers and that, like, we haven't seen a military that large in coming out of the Russians for quite some time. I mean, you see the Chinese and the Indian militaries and the U.S. military is pretty large as well. But coming out of Russia, the Russians have been content to chill out at around the million man mark for their military, for their active duty. For them to now be at almost, they're coming up on two, two million men uh, during wartime. And they seem content for now, but that could change in a moment's notice. So they're coming up on 2 million men 
while they have two to 300,000 troops in Ukraine. And we think that we are weakening Russia. So just, just let that sink in. We we are under the impression here, by, by way of the propaganda press, we think that we are weakening Russia, we're making Russia weaker, but they have two million men under arms. And they don't have to commit them all. They're not throwing men at the problem. They have two to 300,000 men in Ukraine right now, and the rest of these men were either already active duty, because they had 750,000 when the war started, or they were trained or have been trained over the course of the last uh, half of a year. If it's if you're talking about the troops mobilized in December and the last three quarters of a year, if you're talking about the troops who were brought up in October. So they have a lot, hundreds of thousands of men are coming online for the Russians right now. And we're still talking about how the Russians are they want to be a great power again and they they want to project their influence again as if russia ever stopped being a great power so just keep that in mind because again this is going to be a standalone segment in today's episode uh and then history happened but i figured i'd so i figured I'd, I'd cover this one first this little segment first before i uh go over this other story because i believe that this relates in a very interesting way with our next topic, which is Wagner's Rebellion. That's right, folks, that's right. There is a mutiny in the Wagner PMC. Last week, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and I, I think I've been calling this guy Gregory Prigozhin for this entire time, so that's a, another correction I'll just make here. But last week, and I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say this, he made history. He, Prigozhin, commanding his force of around 25,000 men under the Wagner Group, launched a rebellion against uh, not Putin, which is uh, peculiar, not Putin, but the Russian Ministry of Defense. So these 25,000 men under Prigozhin were rebelling against the leadership of the Ministry of Defense, not Putin. And in his words, he wanted to, quote, clear the mess, end quote, in the Ministry of Defense. Prigozhin led his forces out of the Donbass and into the Rostov region of southern Russia. Now, upon reaching the city of Rostov-on-Don, which is the full name of the city, or Rostov, as I'll just call it, upon reaching Rostov, they surrounded the regional headquarters of the Russian military there. This is the headquarters for operations that Russia is conducting in Ukraine. So it's a major strategic point. They get there, they surround it with their armored vehicles, and they go in and they essentially try to commandeer the place and demand a meeting with Shoigu, uh, Sergei Shoigu, who is the Minister of Defense in Russia, the man whom Prigorjin has his beef with, so to speak. Now, when the story broke and I was writing the events down, they had not taken or tried to take the headquarters, and we know now definitively that they did not take the headquarters, but they did go inside. Some of them did go inside, not the whole force. And they tried to have this, they tried to demand a meeting with Shoyu, uh, which is, well, yeah, Prigozhin demanded a one on one meeting with Shoyu, who again is the head of the Ministry of Defense. And this is important, this is an important detail here, piece of context. 
because Prigozhin had been in a near constant feud with Shoigu, especially over the past few months with the lead up to the capture of Bakhmut. And uh, we covered it very, very briefly, very, very briefly when we were talking about the number of shells being supplied to Prigozhin and the Wagner group to sort of gauge the levels of artillery shell consumption of the Russian military. And, you know, as a side note, as a side note, before I move on, I know I'm always giving the Duran tons of praise, uh, but here I think it's, I think it's incredibly well-earned. I think it's incredibly well-earned, especially on this particular issue. Like I just mentioned the personal dispute between Prigozhin and Shoigu, which again, I really didn't cover much. I didn't really didn't cover much. I don't get into the personal, the person on person details of the geopolitics. I lightly touched on him complaining about the Ministry of Defense not supplying him enough enough shells. So even then, I wasn't going on the person to person. I was just going, oh, he's complaining about this. And then the Ministry of Defense published how much artillery they had given him. They'd given him 40,000 shells over the course of a 48 hour period. And I was more interested in the numbers because I it was more relevant to the conversation that we're talking about the Battle of Bakhmut. Okay, well, he's complaining he's not getting enough shells, and then the Ministry of Defense publishes the number of shells that they gave him within a 48-hour time span. So now we can extrapolate that and go, okay, the Russians, based on this, are using X number of shells a day, We and we were able to extrapolate 20,000. 20,000 a day, somewhere around, roundabout, uh, just based on the number of shells supplied to the Wagner Group. And we found out that we were in the ballpark, you know, it was 40, 50,000, maybe 60,000 on a bad day for the Ukrainians. But, you know, we were we were starved for information back then. And so the information I felt that was more important. And I still stand by that my belief that that was more relevant to the conversation back then. But here this and this is why I tell you, watch the Duran. They covered the person-on-person relationship between Prigozhin and Shoigu. They, on top of all the, the details of the battlefield and the, the, the production figures, they covered Prigozhin feuding with Shoigu, which I did not. I was more interested in the numbers of artillery and the artillery shells. But see, if you were watching the Duran, you'd know about this feud and many of its details, certainly much more than you would by just listening to a little old me. You're so your understanding of this history-making event has actually been harmed by not watching the Duran. So I will say it for the millionth time. When you get the chance, go on over and watch the Duran. You will not regret that in the slightest. You will be much more informed as a result. Now, the side note over, back to the story. Uh, yeah, when this broke, he basically laid out that he, he had a beef. I'm talking about Prigozhin. He laid out that he had issues with Shoigu and he wanted the Ministry of Defense to change. He, he wanted them to, to change their leadership. And this is probably, this whole event probably came out as a result of the Ministry of Defense. Uh, well, not the Ministry of Defense, but rather the Russian government, the Russian military, trying to put the Wagner Group under like directly subordinate to the Ministry of Defense, whom Prigozhin had massive issues with. And if you're the Russian government, 
this is probably a logical move to you. You can't have this rogue military element that is supplied and armed by your Ministry of Defense in open uh, insubordination to your Ministry of Defense. So in their eyes, it's a matter of consolidation and keeping everything together, where Prigozhin probably saw that as everyone's siding against him, and they're siding with that uh, that damn bastard Shoigu. And so he said, hey, I'm not going to allow you to put Wagner under the Ministry of Defense, because the Ministry of Defense is led by someone I believe to be incompetent. And so that's where this sort of comes from, this rebellion. Or at least that's the rational explanation for it that I've been able to decipher. It could be something else. It could be an obsession with Shoigu. It could be anything. We don't quite know. Not really. But upon reaching Rostov and surrounding the the building where the Russians were conducting their operations, uh, they moved on when they realized that they weren't going to get their one-on-one meeting with Shoigu. And they moved on to other cities. They kept a number of troops in Rostov. Uh, it wasn't an occupation of Rostov. I mean, uh, Rostov's a big place. But they, they had uh, multiple columns moving on to other cities, towards the Vor- Voronezh region and the Krasnogodar region, as well as towards Moscow. And this is the big one that everyone was talking about. Now, it was claimed, uh, as this part was going on, the, the march to Moscow, it was claimed that Wagner shot a helicopter out of the sky and that missiles had been fired on the Wagner column as it advanced towards Moscow. Now, the helicopter story for the time being appears to be true, or at the very least, I have not come across a solid debunk of it yet. So for the time being, that one appears to be true, and 10 people, if that is true, 10 people did die as a result of that helicopter crash. So for the time being, that one appears to be true. But the story about the missile being fired on Wagner troops was not true. That one was not true. And it it was also claimed that an arrest warrant was put out on Prigozhin early on in this uh, saga. But this too, in the end, proved to be untrue. Russian regular troops were, however, deployed to the capital and and to the capital city, not just the capital region, both named Moscow. Uh, They were deployed in preparation for Wagner forces. They were essentially setting up checkpoints along the road. So they would stop them from getting to the Kremlin. But luckily, the situation didn't even reach that point because a deal was hashed out. Now, interestingly, General Surovikin, the supreme commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, uh, not only did he denounce the actions of Prigozhin and the Wagner forces, but he returned to Russia to deal with the mutiny personally. Now, again, it did not ultimately come to that, luckily calmer heads prevailed and we didn't even get to that point but i thought that was very interesting putin the man of the hour oh well uh the man whom the pressure came upon because i think prigozhin was the man of the hour but putin responded to this by giving a speech addressing the nation and he called this an armed rebellion at a time when russia was fighting a quote fierce struggle for its future repelling an repelling the aggression of neo-Nazis and their masters. And he's referring to us when he says their masters. But he continues, quote, almost the entire military, economic, and information machinery of the West is directed against us. We are fighting for the lives and safety of our people, for our sovereignty and independence, 
for the right to be and remain Russia, a state with a thousand year history, end quote. And he went on to compare the rebellion to the political scheming and maneuvering that happened in Russia in 1917. And those who know your history, that was when the Tsar abdicated the throne, then there was a succession crisis, and then there was the Russian Revolution, followed by the Civil War. And he said this. He, he said, quote, that that, that that scheming and maneuvering led to, quote, the destruction of the army, the collapse of the state, the loss of vast territories, and in the end, the tragedy of the Civil War, end quote. Now, he says that excessive ambitions and personal interests have led to betrayal, and Putin's obviously referring to uh, Prigozhin here when he says that. Putin also said that, quote, anyone who consciously embarked on the path of betrayal, the, those who prepared an armed rebellion and resorted to blackmail and terrorist methods will face inescapable punishment. They will be held accountable under the law and before our people, end quote. So he has labeled this essentially an act of treason, an armed rebellion in his words. Zelensky said of the mutiny that, quote, today the world can see that the masters of Russia control nothing, and that means nothing, simply complete chaos, an absence of any predictability. And then he continued saying, the longer your troops remain in, on Ukrainian land, the greater the devastation they will bring to Russia. So that's what the, the two leaders the, of the two parties of the war had to say. Meanwhile, leaders from around the world reaffirmed their support for the Russian government under Putin. You had leaders from Africa. You had China, India, Brazil, South Africa. You had Iran and Saudi Arabia all throwing their hat into the ring on Putin's side, essentially saying, hey, we're, we're still behind you. Hey, don't don't even worry about this, because the Duran did cover this when they said that, well, and this is back when the mutiny first began, this is going to send shockwaves and it's going to cast doubt in the minds of the international community uh, if Russia is stable or not. So that was something that they did discuss. And we find out the international community has a lot more faith in Russia than we perhaps give them credit for. And that's perhaps the, the the lesson of this story here, that Putin has gotten a lot stronger as a result of this. Uh, and I say that because in the end, Prigozhin's rebellion was concluded after nearly two days, and an agreement was reached between Belarusian President Lukashenko, Vladimir Putin, and Prigozhin himself, which ultimately brought the standoff to a close. The standoff being the mutiny. Prigozhin will be sent to Belarus, and his charges are to be dropped. So essentially, he's being sent into exile in Belarus. And as of now, it seems that Wagner is being broken up with the mutineers being removed from the military without criminal charges and the non-mutineers being integrated into other units within the Russian regular military. So Wagner is essentially being dissolved and its troops are being integrated into the Russian military, which accomplishes the same purpose that was going to happen anyway, which is that Wagner was going to be uh, subordinated to the Russian Ministry of Defense. And in a de facto sense, it has, because it's the troops that are remaining in active service are going to be serving in units and military units that are already 
under that are already subordinate to the Russian Ministry of Defense. And the mutineers aren't going to be in military service at all. So Wagner, in a sense, is now subordinated to the Ministry of Defense. And that's what has happened. So what, what the beginning, the cause of all this, or at least the assumed cause of all this, has now been the outcome anyway. Which does raise large questions as to why exactly Prigozhin did this, especially if this was going to be his reward for doing so. And I think that that's just going to be one of those mysteries that we really don't find out the answers to for a while. But, you know, it'll be, it's interesting to speculate on. Perhaps, perhaps he really did think that he was being betrayed and there was a, a power struggle being played against him and he was losing. And he said, hey, I have a force of thousands of men who are willing to serve under me. I can use that to force change in the Russian government. I can use it to force the Russian Ministry of Defense to get its act together, in, in his mind, of course. I can force them to do that. I can force change, and then nobody else will have to deal with the, the inadequacies, again, in his opinion, the inadequacies of the current leadership. Perhaps that's what was going through his mind. But, again, we might never know. But what we do know is that he's being exiled to Belarus. Wagner has been broken up partitioned and put under new units, all subordinate to the Russian Ministry of Defense. But while this uh, crisis was going on, ministers and heads of bureaus began essentially swearing fealty and pledging their loyalty to Putin, while shaming and disavowing the mutiny to distance themselves from the rebellion, isolating Prigozhin and consolidating Putin's leadership in Russia. So yes, Putin has emerged from this affair stronger, both internally as well as internationally. No coup, no civil war, and <laughs> no uprising like many, and I do mean many, like many were trying to make it seem. And now some still are, don't get me wrong, some still are. And the, and in that regard, there is some utility in this story, which came and went as soon as it popped onto the scene. Uh, but there is some utility on this, right? You know, something to be gained from this all, which is that this story is yet another litmus test, if you will. Another opportunity to see sort of who is and who isn't beholden to the propaganda. Who is free and who is a slave to the propaganda machine? Who is capable of seeing through it and who still allows it to put the blinders on? Because I didn't believe it for a second. I said, hey, you know, that's, that's very peculiar. He's led a mutiny. And then I find out, and like I was so, it, it caught me so off guard. I was... <laughs> I was at work. I wake up but before I go to work. I wake up. I check my phone. Uh, Prigozhin, the Wagner group, uh, relieves force into Russia. They capture this, that, and the third. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'll read that later. <laughs> and then when I got to reading it later, there were already two different stories that popped up on my feed. Now, both of them were essentially claiming that 
the Russian government was uh, on the verge of collapse. And this is the new civil war, the coup against Putin. Wagner mounts a coup against Putin, except it wasn't directed at Putin. It was directed at Shoigu, which, you know, sounds incredibly hard to believe unless, again, you've been covering the interpersonal relationship between Prigozhin and Shoigu. It's very believable if you know about that feud. But if you don't know about that feud, you would never believe it. You would never, ever in a million years believe that some man led a force of 25,000 men into Russia proper, essentially crossing the Rubicon as, as he did so, to launch a mutiny, a rebellion against not the leader of the country, but against the Ministry of Defense. That in any other context, that would not make any sense. So in a way, we can forgive people for not uh, believing the truth about this story and running with the idea that it was a coup. But that's why it's important to get to information from reliable sources like the Duran. Go watch the Duran. Go watch. <laughs> oh, goodness, I feel like I'm their propaganda wing at this point. But yeah, it, it's it's been very interesting watching how this developed because... I'm like, okay, he has a force of a few tens of thousands of men. He's gone into Russia, okay. And now what? Okay, he's long, he's saying he's doing this. And it, it caught the entire world by surprise. Everyone had to do sudden streams and change the things to sort of cover it in the early news. And by the time it had already fizzled out, you had people think, oh, yeah, this is a, a civil war. I'm like, where did the civil war come from? Like, whoa, what? How did we get here? How? Because apparently there were other stories that came out saying that large parts of the FSB and the Russian military had defected to Wagner's side, which have now been proven categorically uh, lies. Not, not just untrue, just blatant lies. And I'm like, okay. That got wild so fast and then died down so quickly that a, a lot of a lot of the hype just flew straight over my head. I didn't even have time to immerse myself in how wrong the other people were. And you know, part of me is a little sad about that. I I I, I can't poop on them. <laughs> but we can see who is and isn't beholden to the, the propaganda narrative. And it's the same set of characters. Some people fell for it, others didn't. And, and it was really widespread. Uh, like, people who, in my life, who, you know, uh, usually don't even talk about geopolitics and things like that, they were going, oh, Russia's in civil war. And like, uh, you know the mutiny's over, right? They did not know that. Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's hard being a friend sometimes. You want to tell them the truth, but you don't want to rain on the parade. <laughs> but this has been very, you know, useful. You know, and locating who you can trust for your information. And hopefully you come to the determination that you can trust little old me. You know, I try. I do try. But if at the very least, you got to watch the Duran. <laughs> and I'll, I, I suppose I'll leave that there. But honestly, like, like let's, let's really be serious about this for just two seconds. People thought that a force of 20, 25,000 men was going to topple the Russian government 
when that same government, and remember I said that the first segment of this episode was going to sort of tie into this very interestingly, people thought that 25,000 men was going to topple the Russian government when the Russian government was sitting on literally a million men in reserve. Forget active duty. They, they still had half or more of their active duty force that they could have thrown at the problem whenever they wanted, which is 300,000 plus men. But a million men in trained reserves. And these people thought that that 25,000 men was going to overthrow the Russian government? Come on now. Come on now. Like, it, it, in that context, it's like, okay, what exactly were you thinking? Because uh, you read some of these articles, they bring up the fact that the Wagner had like 25,000 25, men. They bring it up. But then the question is, okay, they have that many men. How many men does the Russian government have available to it? Oh, it's nearly 2 million. Oh, they have 1.8 million men. And not even a quarter of that is being used in Ukraine right now? Oh, okay. Well, you know. Um, so if they were to deploy the troops, let's, let's just say theoretically, hypothetically, maybe if they... If Russia, you know, just, just throwing it out there, if they, if they were to deploy the troops to put down this rebellion from Wagner, um, hmm, how many men would that take? 100, uh, 200, oh, oh, if they sent 50,000, they'd double the Wagner numbers? Oh, okay, um, and that's what percentage of the Russian military? Let's find out. Now, if I know my math correctly if i know my math correctly if 100,000 is 10% of a million and 200,000 is 10% of 2 million then that would mean 100,000 is half a percent ha is no 5% right 100,000 would be 5% of 2 million right cuz 200,000 would be 10% so 100,000 would be 5%, which means 50,000 would be 2.5%. 2.5% of their total forces, well, they actually they have 1.8 million. So let's, let's go with 1.8 million. Yeah, let's do that. All right, all right. And you get, hey, a man, a man, look, uh, you get 2.7%, you know, that, that's a lot, okay? 2.7% of the total Russian military, that, that's, that's a lot, you know, you know, 2%, almost three, you know, and they would double the size of the Wagner forces. <laughs> you can't make this up. You really can't. But you know what? I welcome the entertainment. I really do. Because it gives me things to talk about, you know, and it allows me to uh, talk shit geopolitically, which is my specialty on this podcast. Ah, but another day, another round of truth to bring to the people. But uh, the absurdity of 25,000 men overthrowing the Russian government aside, yeah, let's, let's move on, shall we? And we'll be moving on to 
China. China opening a joint training base in Cuba. Training who? The military in Cuba. Uh, oh, wow. Wait, where did you say? In Cuba. Oh my goodness. We have a problem. Now, we talked a little bit last week about the spy base that was in Cuba that the story broke that they had had one for a few years in Cuba and they were trying to do upgrades to it. And we got a lesson in what real strategic interests and real strategic vulnerabilities look like. And it looks like um, your neighbors. It looks like neighbors that you leave on the vine with no relationship with no cooperation, no, no contact. And you get problems because eventually they'll just reach out to other countries. They'll accept what other, uh, other countries reach out to them. The Cubans aren't just going to sit there and go, Oh gee, we're isolated. No, they're going to go, Oh, you want to do diplomacy with us? Okay. We'll do diplomacy with you. You want to do a spy base in us? Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll do it. Shit. And now we're, we're in this panic mode where we're trying to respond to something that should never have even happened. Not because we should make the, the Cubans fear us, but because we should have had a working relationship with our neighbor. Why don't we have that? that and that, and that's, a, that's an honest question. Why don't we have a functioning relationship with our neighbor? We don't have that many of them let's let's be completely real here like we are very blessed in that regard from a security point of view we only have like three neighbors canada mexico and cuba now if you include alaska we have russia as a neighbor okay well, that's four you have the bahamas okay that's five <laughs> we really don't have that many and only two of them we have an actual border with so how do you how do you fuck this up it's it's annoying to watch I'll, I'll say that much and i again i will hold it against trump he sabotaged the normalization of relations between us and cuba and in that regard i'd have to give credit where credit is due to obama because obama was trying to normalize relations with cuba a common sense move why would you not have a relationship uh, uh, and why would you not be on speaking terms with one of the five countries that you need to be on speaking terms with for your own physical security? Like we talk about Taiwan and their chip production as, uh, as though that was critical to U.S. security. No, it's not. We, we, you have people talking about how defeating Russia and Ukraine is uh, great for the United States. That means nothing to us. Especially if you're going to ignore your neighbors to pursue these grandiose ideas. Like, what are you doing? What what are we doing? We can go fight a war in Vietnam for 20 years, but we can't have a, a functional relationship with Cuba? Yeah? We, we, can go, we can go shoot goat herders and mountain bandits in Afghanistan for 20 years and do so in Iraq for 21 or 22, or 23, or 25 years plus. We'll see how long it goes on for. We can do all that, but we can't speak to the Cubans. Like this is this is stupid. This is actually stupid, and it's <laughs> and the the more I think about it, the dumber it looks. 
And of course, ooh, I have to assume I have to assume these are normal people, which means that this is deliberate. These are this is a pro, this is asking for a problem, asking for another Cuban missile crisis. And depending on how much th- this stuff with China between China and Cuba escalates, we might actually get another Cuban missile crisis. And we'll have ourselves to blame because our neighbors should have no incentive to allow themselves to be weaponized against us. But if we're not even going to speak to them because, oh, you're a communist, we're not going to speak to you. Okay, well, when they go speaking to foreign powers, we can't sit here and get, uh, uh, we can't sit here and throw a tantrum about it. This is the dumbest foreign policy idea ever. The idea that you're going to go around the world spreading freedom and democracy while bombing civilians and getting into grandiose geostrategic struggles with Russia and China and Iran, and then you leave this wide-ass door open for these adversaries that you created by being involved on the other side of the world to come in and start fucking with you. It's the dumbest thing. It's so stupid that it has to be deliberate. It's so dumb that it can't be organic. It has to be deliberate. Like, what else am I supposed to believe? That nobody up there in those planning rooms where you see them doing the war games with Taiwan and how a war between U.S. and China over Taiwan would go, that none of the people responsible for that even thought about, hmm, maybe we should have a, a working relationship with Cuba? Actually, I can believe that. <laughs> Actually, I can believe that a lot, huh? I've just sabotaged my, my own metaphor here. But honestly... It really says a lot about how misplaced our priorities are, that it takes a crisis for us to even consider the idea of speaking to the Cubans, unless you're Obama, which, again, I got to give credit where credit is due. But back to this uh, joint training base that the Chinese are trying to set up in Cuba, a joint training base between the Chinese and Cuban militaries, which flies completely in the face of the Monroe Doctrine. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, in a way, I'm kind of happy because now everyone gets a lesson in what real priorities look like. This is why we have the Monroe Doctrine. Hello. Let's go back to what actually matters here. But I was reading this Al Jazeera article because it was, it was uh, the only way I was going to get access. Because the original article was from the Wall Street Journal, but I don't have, I don't have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. So, aha, Al Jazeera, here we go. Uh, but it's, it, it goes like this. Uh, China has been negotiating the creation of a joint of a new joint training facility on the Caribbean island nation of Cuba. Creating concerns, it would lead to the stationing of Chinese troops in the waters off the U.S., according to the Wall Street Journal. Again, the original articles from the Wall Street Journal. The newspaper on Tuesday reported that discussions between the two countries are in advanced stages, but had not concluded. The report said the officials from the administration of President Joe Biden have been trying to discourage their Cuban counterparts from finalizing the deal. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, and uh, I'll just take a moment to talk about how fake of a job that is, National Security Council spokesman. Who are you? (laughs) But uh, he told reporters, John Kirby, he told reporters on Tuesday, quote, it's no secret or surprise uh, that China is trying to improve their influence or reach. Uh, He continues by saying, it's not like we aren't aware of it. 
it's not like we haven't been monitoring it, end quote. He, he also says, uh, we'll continue to take steps to uh, be able to protect our own secrets and our own national security, he says. Um, okay, so it's not like you aren't aware of it. It's not like you aren't monitoring it. Okay, so, so you've been aware of it and you've been monitoring it. And it's so obvious that China is trying to improve their influence and reach, but you've sat and done literally nothing about it until the story drops in the news. Yeah. Like, get this guy out of here. Somebody, somebody get him, get these people out of here. You're monitoring the situation, but you're going to do literally nothing about what, what good are you then? What use are you then? You're going to monitor this situation. You're going to take steps to be able to protect your own secrets. But at no point did you think, hmm, maybe we should reach out to the Cubans and ask, ask them nicely not to have a foreign power established military connections with them. You know, talk to your neighbor. Is, is this just a taboo? Like, what is this? This is so goofy. It's so dumb that it has to be deliberate. I, there's no way. There's no other way. Uh, it's I I can't I can't take these people seriously I I can't but I have to because they're, they're my government oh brother uh, anyway it's no it's no secret or surprise it's not like we aren't aware it's not like we aren't we haven't been monitoring it you're aware it's no secret it's no surprise you've been monitoring it you're aware of it but you do absolutely nothing that's that's crazy to me um we'll continue. <laughs> To taste. <laughs> oh, this is this is actually gold. This is actually comedy gold. We're, we'll continue to take steps to be able to protect our own secrets and our own national security. Except we're not going to talk to either of the countries involved about this issue. Wow, that sounds like oh my goodness, bro. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, you know, this is what happens when you only have one tool in your in your toolbox. When the only tool in your toolbox is giving money to Ukraine, everything looks like a Ukrainian bank account. <laughs> oh, the Chinese are setting up a spy base in Cuba. Send more money to Ukraine. The Chinese have a balloon flying over our skies. Send more money to Ukraine. There's a, a the Titanic submersible thing uh, just suffered a, a catastrophic implosion send more money to ukraine the ukrainians are losing in their counter offense send more money to ukraine the russians are in a second civil war oh gotta send more money to ukraine <laughs> is is this what our foreign policy is is this the state of our foreign policy I mean, I can believe it, but I, I think it is it's, it's still worth asking the question is this how far we have fallen is this all? Is this what we have left? This is absolutely ridiculous. I almost can't read this. I, I almost can't read this. And I'm reading this for what the third time because I'm reading it to you now. Oh my goodness. Uh, on Tuesday, US officials also renewed calls to reestablish military to military communication between the US and China, an objective Blinken did not attain on his visit. And unobjected that he never will, because Biden sabotaged anything that he might possibly have maybe gained in that visit when he called Xi Jinping a dictator. So all of that went straight down the drain in less than 24 hours. 
So war with, war with China it is. The Cold War with China it is. Cuban Missile Crisis with China it is. We've they've made the choice. They made the decision. Again, when you call somebody names, sometimes those names, depending on how heinous they are, have actions associated with them. You're and here we go again. How like how you're gonna you want military military communication between the U.S. and China? But you call China's leader a dictator. If he's a dictator, why do you why do you, why would we want military to military communication? Why would we want to tell the military of an authoritarian dictator what our military is doing? See how that see how that sabotages any attempt at doing something useful. This is why you can't be a child in politics. You can't just go out calling people names whenever they whenever you don't like a leader. Whenever you don't like someone in another country, you can't just go calling them names and expect that you're going to get some diplomacy done with them. It's so dumb that it has to be deliberate. It has to be. Why would why would they want military to military communication with you if you're going to keep if you're going to keep calling them names? Forget that you're calling them uh you're calling their leader a, a, dicta- a dictator. You're disrespecting their leader. Whom they have respect for, we don't have respect for him, but they do. They consent to his leadership. As a matter of fact, especially the military, because he's their supreme commander. And you're calling him a dictator. You're disrespecting him. Why Why would they want military-to-military communication with you? Are you going to Are you gonna stop sailing carrier battle groups through the South China Sea? No. Are you going to stop sailing destroyers through the Taiwan Strait? No. Well, if you're not going to do anything they want, why should they do anything you want? Forget military-to-military cooperation and communication. Let's just talk in terms of deals. If we're not going to offer anything that the Chinese would actually want, then why should they offer us anything? Again, we have children dressed up uh, in adult clothing, pretending that they know something about geopolitics, pretending that they know something about diplomacy. Trump knew what diplomacy was. Unfortunately, he sabotaged our relationship with Cuba. But in every other regard, he did pretty damn good. He did pretty damn good. He walked across the DMZ four times in one day, didn't get shot. He had the Abraham Accords. He he worked out a deal with the Taliban, a ceasefire where we could get our troops out. Gave us whole months, whole months, nearly a year to get our forces out, that's diplomacy. He was working out trade deal after trade deal after trade deal. That's diplomacy. Now, unfortunately, he also he also fell for the Iran war trap where we're gonna go bomb Iran. We're gonna do, go fight Iran. He fell for that trap. Unfortunately, he also fell for the trap of, oh, we're gonna back Juan Guaido in Venezuela. He, he wasn't perfect. He fell for a number of traps, unfortunately. He's 0-2 when it comes to dealing with our neighbors. Uh, But hey, at least he had good relations with Brazil. He managed to have good relations with Mexico. The Canadians didn't have a choice but to have a good relationship with him because, you know, that's how this works, you know. Uh, Future American provinces should cozy up to their their future leaders. (laughs) But, yeah. He knew diplomacy. 
he fucked up a few times, but he knew diplomacy. He could get a deal when he put his mind to it. And he put his mind to it uh, in a, a number of areas. Unfortunately, he put more effort into the, the Abraham Accords than he did into working out relationships with our neighbors. But had he done so, had he focused on our neighbors, we could have, we probably would not even be in this situation. I'll, I'll just be straight up with you. He knew diplomacy. I look, you go back in time. You look at Kissinger. I do not like Kissinger one bit, but he knew diplomacy. People used to know diplomacy. We used to have diplomats, people who actually knew what they were doing. The people running the show today have no clue, but they pretend that they do. And they'll speak these grand platitudes as if they did, but they know nothing. And we suffer the consequence of that. We, we uh, it's, it's dangerous. I'll just say that much. It's, it's very dangerous. The times that we're living in, not because the times themselves are dangerous, but because the people running the show are so immature. But they have so much power at the same time. And they use, of course, when you combine the two, you get immature usages of lots of power. And that has consequences. So now the U.S. is tr desperately trying to get Cuba not to do this. Desperately trying, even while they sabotage their relationships with us and China. Because that's one avenue that you could get to stop this. You could work out a deal with the Chinese to get them to stop. But Biden sabotaged any possibility of that. You could work with the Cubans to get them to stop this from their end. Because without the Cuban consent, there is no base. Uh, no one even no one even is considering talking to Cuba. And uh, it's it's a mess. The, now you have the the senior director uh, for the China and Taiwan affairs, the senior director of China and Taiwan affairs of the White House security. What in tarnation? Get these fake jobs out of here, bro. What? Let me. I'm, I'm gonna attempt to read this again so that you understand what I'm looking at right now. The senior director for China and Taiwan affairs of the White House Security Council, Sarah Baran. That is the fakest job I have ever heard of, and she's doing a very terrible job because I've never heard of her name before. I've never heard of a proposal coming out of her. Uh, what, what, where was she when Blinken went to China? Why was she not a part of that delegation? Was she too busy doing running war games between the United States and China? Like, get out of here. All these fake jobs that do literally nothing. Get these, get these people out of here. But, yeah, Sarah Behran, the leader of uh, White House Security Council, Taiwan and China Affairs. There we go. Uh, the senior director of that council, uh, well, that part of the council, or whatever incarnation she, <laughs> whatever the heck she is, I don't know. I, I don't know what this is. This is a, this is a fake job. I, I don't know what this is. The, the senior director of China and Taiwan Affairs in the White House, Sarah Behran, told reporters in a briefing that establishing military-to-military -military communications was essential to reduce frictions between the two global powers. This is an absolutely critical way for us to manage competition, crisis communication, and ensure that there is not miscommunication or misinterpretation about each other's intentions, Behran said. She, says, she also says, quote, 
we remain willing and able at all levels to meet and call on China to respond appropriately to that. Okay, so you want them to communicate, okay? You want them to communicate. You you think that communication is absolutely critical for managing competition, you know, crisis communication. You you don't want mis miscommunications or mis it, it, perceptions about each other's and each other's intentions. Okay, okay. You're willing and able, but that last line: we're willing and able at all levels to meet. And they call on China to respond appropriately to that. Clearly, she has not been paying attention to the last week or so. Because they are not, we're not, we're not willing at all levels to meet with China. Biden doesn't want to meet with China. He wants to berate China. Biden wants to call Xi Jinping a dictator. There is no, we are giving no incentive whatsoever to the Chinese side for this cooperation. We, we, we offer nothing, nothing of value that would incentivize them to come along with this. They have every incentive to just spite us and go for this joint training base anyway, to, to triple double down on their spy base, and then to build an airstrip on Cuban soil. What, like, what are we offering? What exactly are we offering? Because I don't see it. I don't see. We she says these things, but where was she when Blinken went to China? If we're if we're uh, if we're willing and able at all levels to meet with China, then why was she not with Blinken when he went to go meet with China? Where was she? Why was she not part of the delegation? She's the senior director for China and Taiwan affairs of the White House Security Council. Okay, well, where's the rest of that branch for China and Taiwan affairs? Why were they not a part of the delegation? Oh, it's because what she just said is fake, just like her job. None of this is real. There's no diplomacy here. These people know nothing. And they are so immature that they don't realize that they don't know nothing. But they do these things that sabotage us completely. And not just us, but any attempt from people who might possibly know something about diplomacy. Uh, uh, Blinken. And then we get into stupid situations where now, where we could have brought this up with the Chinese when Blinken went over there. We could have brought up the, the, the spy base when Blinken went over there. We, we could have actually worked out some tangible action-based agreements from which you could build off of. None of that was implemented. None of that was even talked about. Well, Blinken did talk about some of these things, but he, he was by himself. What was he supposed to do? He was, gonna, he was supposed to sit there and argue with the Chinese delegation for eight, eight, 10, 20 hours by himself why the United States needed this, 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 and this, and, while, and how the United States was going to demand that but not offer anything to the Chinese in return? Of course, that was never going to work. Who thought that that was a good idea? This is, this is ludicrous. This is ludicrous. These fake people with these fake jobs running their mouths, getting us into problems. And then the, the leader of the free world is no better. We, 
there's such immaturity at so many levels. So that that's what we really need to be talking about. Forget we're ready and able at all levels to communicate. No, we're not. We are unready and incapable at all levels to communicate. And we have no business calling on the Chinese to reciprocate that because we're not ready. We're, we're too immature. And by we, I mean our government. They're too immature and emotionally unstable to have those discussions, to have those talks. Because they want, they want to sit there and call people names. They want to sit there and say all the worst things about the people that they need to be talking to, and then nothing gets accomplished. Because you can't negotiate with a war criminal. You can't have win-win cooperation with a dictator who commits a genocide of the Uyghurs. Certain names that you call people, certain words, when you attribute those actions to other people, certain actions are then expected of you. You cannot negotiate with a terrorist. It's one thing for me to call the, the Ukrainians a, a nuclear terrorist state. I'm not the one conducting diplomacy of them. And uh, forget whether or not it's accurate, which it is. But if I am the head of, say, foreign affairs, if I am I'm the secretary of state, I don't get to say those things. If I'm the president of the United States, I don't get to say those things anymore. Because it's my job to be able to speak to these people. But no one in our government understands that. And so we, and no one in our government understands that it's important to speak to Cuba because nowhere in that article did we say, hey, we're going to reach out to Cuba. It's all about China. It's all about how we're going to manage competition with China, how we're going to manage our relationship with China. And not a single word about how we're going to talk to the Cubans and ask them nicely to not allow the China, this deal to go through. Not a single word about Cuba. It just flew straight over their head. The one country that could stop this if it wanted to, the Cubans. And we didn't say a word to them. So this base is going to happen. It's going to happen. The spy base is going to stay right where it is. This joint training base is going to is going to be built. Because we do not have people in this country mature enough in mind and in emotions to handle what we're dealing with. So essentially what I, all this brings us to is what real interests look like and what real priorities look like. And our current government, they don't got it. This administration, they, they don't get it. They just don't get it. Which is exactly why I'll be voting Trump in 2024. <laughs> and that is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's uh, broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, I hope you, if you can't watch the full episode, I hope you enjoyed the, the little snippets that I will release uh, sometime later on in the week. But uh, the world is changing and history is made in multiple areas. But if there's one thing we know for sure, folks, is that you and I will have fun watching that history unfold together. Now, I've been your host, I, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.